All right. Well, I guess we'll begin, and if uh, others join us along the way, that will be great as well. So one of the great documents to come out of the, the Reformation was the, the Heidelberg Catechism, written in uh, 1563. Uh, Anna Maria von Schurman was a uh, Dutch woman who lived from 1607 to 1678, so uh, a couple generations after the Reformation. But uh, she was reportedly the first woman uh, in Europe to attend university. She was an artist, a poet, proficient in 14 languages, well-educated all around. And in her later life, she recounted that when she was no more than four years old, she and her maid were out picking flowers in a field, and her maid asked her to recite the first question and answer of the Heidelberg Catechism, that question being, what is your only comfort in life and death? And Ben Sherman said that as she stated the words of the answer, that I am not my own but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, that's kind of an abridgment of the first answer, she said that she became so exhilarated and so filled with the love of Christ that this event and the emotions she experienced were etched into her memory for the rest of her life. And so this document is a very uh, powerful document. And tonight, as we consider the Reformation, I want to uh, consider, first of all, one of the authors of this document, a man named Caspar Levianus, and then uh, I want to hone in then on the text of Scripture 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verses 30 and 31, and uh, this was a text that we'll see how Ele- uh, Levianus used in, uh, in one of his writings. And so this man, Levianus, was born in a place called Trier, which is modern-day West Germany, near the, the border of Luxembourg, grew up in the, the Roman Catholic faith in that place. He was born in 1536, so a good 19 years after Luther nailed the 95 Theses, but nevertheless still in that portion of Europe, still Roman Catholicism, uh, held sway. And so he went at the age of 15 to the University of Paris to study languages and later went to, to Orléans to study law. And in the town of, of Orléans in France there in the mid-1550s or so was a town with many Protestant sympathizers. And Alevianus joined the underground Protestant church. And so he's a young man, about 20 years old or so, and joins this underground Protestant church in Orléans. And while he was there, he befriended the second son of a German nobleman who would become Frederick III, uh, the elector or the prince of the region of the Palatinate, which is this area in which the city of Heidelberg, Germany is. And so, uh, and so Alevianus befriends this young man, the son of Frederick, whose name was Hermann. And one day as they were, they were out near a river, they came across this, this group of drunken students who were, were in a boat, and they invited them to get in. Levianus saw that this was a bad idea, and he could not persuade young Herman from not getting into the boat. And so Herman gets into the boat, and somebody rocks the boat out in the middle, causing everyone to fall out, and people to drown. And Levianus jumped into the river to attempt to save Prince Herman, but was unsuccessful and probably would have drowned himself were it not for one of the prince's servants also jumping in and trying to save the prince and mistaking Levianus for the prince. And so he pulls Levianus out and Prince Herman was left to drown. And Levianus would say later on that 
During that incident, in fear, he promised God that if God would save his life, he would go to the Germans as a preacher. And so Levianus took his law degree, 1557, and returned to, to Trier, to his hometown, to practice law for eight months before visiting uh, Geneva and then Zurich, and then returned to Geneva to study theology. And during his time in Geneva, he met William Farrell. And if you if you're familiar with Reformation history, you may recall that William Farrell was, was kind of a firebrand who was the one who basically denounced Calvin and said, and said if you don't help us here with the Reformation in Geneva, you, you, can, be, you can be a Jonah for all we care. And, and so he was very, uh, very, very fiery, very forceful sometimes in terms of making his opinion known. And William Farrell encouraged Levianus to return to Germany and fulfill his vow to become a preacher to the Germans. And so he did. In the summer of 1559, he was called uh, by the Council of Trier to become a teacher there in town in kind of a secondary school, I guess what we might think of as kind of a high school. And in the late summer, in August, he began holding worship services in German in that school. And that fall, the the vision came to the town, and it was divided between the, the evangelicals who claimed that under the Peace of Augsburg of 1555, they should be allowed to worship uh, rightfully as Protestants, and uh, Levianus himself signed the, the 1540 version of the Augsburg Confession. But the problem was that the elector of Trier, who was also the archbishop, and so was both a Roman Catholic official and also a civil official, had forbidden the use of the Augsburg Confession, in other words, had forbidden Protestantism. And so in that fall, Levianus was jailed, and then in December was released and fined, and then from there, he was called by Frederick III to Heidelberg to become a professor of theology. And 1562, he gives up his position in the university and began serving as a, as a preacher in the, uh, the Church of the Holy Spirit in St. Peter's Church there in Heidelberg and was, was very influential there until uh, the death of Frederick III in 1576. Uh, when Frederick III died in 1576, one of his sons was a, was a Lutheran, and so with the, uh, the shift in the ruler, that also meant the, the shift in the official religion of the territory, and so Frederick III, being reformed, had reformed theologians in, in his court and in his universities and churches, and his son, being a Lutheran, expelled these uh, reformed ministers, and so uh, Levianus moves on to another area of Germany and serves for another 11 years before his death in 1587. But one of the things about Levianus that I want to hone in on was uh, his, his introduction to, to a book that he wrote just before he had to leave Heidelberg in 1576. He wrote a, a brief exposition of the Apostles' Creed, and I think that we get a good feeling for the, the warmth of Levianus and his zeal for the gospel in this letter that was attached as a foreword and it was addressed to the youth who are zealous for true piety. And so he says, Most beloved youth, blossoms of the church, you have learned the purpose of this little book of mine, from the preface to the most illustrious elector of the Palatinate. All that remains is that you receive it with the same hand by which it is offered to you, that is, with the right hand and not with the left. That will happen if I achieve my goal and by the grace of God, inflame you to the fervent study of the sacred writings. In, in these words, Levianus wanted to stir up 
young people so that they could learn about God, so that in turn they could teach others about God. In his words, Levianus described his own experience. He said, when I was just a boy, I was certainly inflamed with the desire for learning and teaching others about God. It seemed to be just a small event, but in reality it was significant. I came upon the writing of a certain learned man in which he was exhorting the youth to what amounted to this very purpose. There is nothing more excellent, he said, than to teach people about God, the creation of the human race, the fall into sin, reconciliation and restoration through the Son of God, the promised seed of the woman who would bruise the head of the serpent. What he was saying seemed to me altogether holy and godly. And by these words, it pleased the Lord to ignite in me sparks of a fervent desire to learn and eventually teach others, either in the school or in the church. In my mind's eye, I pictured groups of young people in the school and learners in the church. What could be more excellent, I thought, than to have before you not only young people, but also gray-haired farmers who, like you, have been banished from paradise because of sin and, like Adam, cultivate the earth, men revered for their old age and as fathers, and many women also revered as mothers. If the Lord wishes you to speak his word to these people and to teach them about God, the creation and preservation of the world, the cunning of the serpent who tempted humanity, and the promised salvation through the seed of the woman, what could happen to you that would be more gratifying? What more could God wish for? Without the knowledge of such things, people live more miserably than brute beasts. And as he went on, he contrasted his own teaching there as he was going to lay it out in this exposition of the Apostles' Creed with what he had uh, sat under growing up in, in Roman Catholicism. He, he says, He, that is Christ, will be shown to you in such a way that you are led, as it were, by the hand of the trustworthy word of the prophets and the apostles, or to put it a better way, by that torch shining in a dark place. You will come to know that he is truly the one whom God has made for our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. As it is written, anyone who glories, let him glory in the Lord. And we are complete in him. He himself had been stirred up to teach people about Christ. That Christ is truly our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. And Levianus' goal in writing this was to, to stir up other people to teach God as well. And in his preface to those youths, Levianus mentioned how in his own upbringing, many of those truths of the gospel had been obscured by, by false teaching under which he sat. He said that the direction that they gave me was less than clear because of the multitude of human traditions by which the suffering and resurrected Christ was wrapped and obscured in popery so much so that I could not benefit from the light that I saw shining from the collection of types and their fulfillment in the passion of Christ. And so the, the fundamentals were being placed before him, but he couldn't see them clearly because they were so obscured and so wrapped in untruths that were obscuring the truth about Christ and this is why Olevianus wanted to be clear, wanted to be biblical in his own teaching. He didn't want anything in his teaching or in his writing to obscure the scriptures, which ultimately pointed to Christ and to his sufficiency as our Savior. 
And this then means, consequently, that all glory then will go to Christ. And that's what I want to draw your attention to tonight as we briefly consider 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 30 and 31. Paul writes there, But by His doing you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And now in those verses, Paul is describing for us the sufficiency, the absolute and full sufficiency of Jesus. That Jesus is our wisdom from God. As the book of Proverbs tells us, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the Lord Jesus is our wisdom in that in knowing Him and trusting Him is the highest wisdom. And in trusting Him and learning His word, we are made wise so that we might live for God faithfully in this world. Jesus is the one who is all-wise, and through faith we are united to the one who is all-wise in his dealings with us and the one who imparts his wisdom to us. Jesus is our wisdom from God, and he is also our righteousness from God. Apart from Christ, we have no righteousness. We're not righteous in ourselves because we're sinful. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and as such, we are not fit to stand before God by ourselves. But Christ is our righteousness, because he himself lived sinlessly on earth and went to the cross to bear our sins. And we become righteous in him, in that not only does he take our sins completely away through his sacrifice on the cross, he also gives his righteousness to us. We find in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And thus, any righteousness that we have is a gift of Christ. It is alien righteousness, foreign to us, but imputed to us, because we are united to Christ, and therefore it is given to us. So Jesus is our wisdom, he's our righteousness, he's also our sanctification, in that through Christ, we are made holy. It's through Jesus that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, the Holy Spirit works a change in us. He takes us from being those who love sin and those who love living in sin and changes us so that we now love something else. We love God and we love God's commandments and walking in obedience to God. And it's the Holy Spirit who enables us to turn from our sin, to walk with the Lord. It's through Christ that we receive the Spirit. Jesus is our sanctification. In him we are sanctified. And Paul says also that Jesus is our redemption. Jesus is the one who redeems us. And that means that Jesus is the one who takes us out of living in slavery to sin and takes us out of the misery of living in slavery to sin. He's the one who came down from heaven, as it were, to grab us out of that wickedness and to bring us into God's kingdom. He takes all who trust in him off of the road to hell and puts us on the road to heaven. Jesus is all of these things. Jesus does all of these things for us. He's our wisdom from God, our righteousness, our sanctification, and redemption. And is it any wonder then that Paul would follow this up immediately by saying in verse 31, so that, as it is written, let him who boasts, boast 
in the Lord. And he's quoting there from, from Jeremiah, where Jeremiah says, Let not the, the wise man boast in his wisdom, but, uh, nor let the, uh, the, the mighty man boast in his strength, but rather let him who boasts boast in the Lord. Paul's point here is that in ourselves, we have absolutely nothing to boast about, absolutely nothing to brag about, absolutely nothing to glory in. We can and should only brag and boast about Jesus because Jesus is the one who accomplishes everything for our salvation and therefore all glory goes to Christ. And this really is what the heart of the Reformation is all about. The heart of the Reformation was all about stripping back the man-made doctrines and distractions and coming back to the scriptures to see them clearly. This is what Alevianus was trying to do, was trying to, trying to peel back these untruths so that the truth that he was being taught could be clearly seen and clearly understood for what it was. He was taught many true things and many untrue things. He wants to peel back the untrue things to see the truth for what it really is. He wanted to see the scriptures and what they truly teach about salvation. How can I be saved? This is the most fundamental and basic question in all of life. And the scriptures point us clearly to Christ and Christ alone as the only Savior that he is the one who does all the work for our salvation, and we enter into this salvation through faith alone, trusting in Christ alone, and since Christ does all for us, all glory goes to him. And then we should boast in him, glory in him, and in him alone. And so may it be for all of us here tonight. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the glorious truth that Christ is all, that he is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption, that we have nothing to boast in or nothing to glory in. Lord, we pray that the truths of your word would never be obscured from our view by addition or subtraction, but rather that we would look to your word, that we would see clearly the grace of the gospel and that we would glory in Christ and in him alone, we praise you for this great salvation which you have given to us in Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.